This episode of Left Behind contains semi-graphic details of battle and death that are not appropriate for some audiences. Marvellous Harbor on the southern Bataan Peninsula was chaotic in the midnight hours of April 8th to 9th, 1942. In the bay, barges, boats, and anything that could float was being commandeered if needed and loaded with people, supplies, and equipment for evacuation. On land, explosions rocked Bataan as equipment, ammunition, and other military installations that couldn't be moved were being destroyed. The detonations rumbled the ground between Sergeant Felipe Fernandez, a 25-year-old Filipino native with a handsome square face, full lips, and ears that stood out just a bit. Those explosions lit the midnight sky with an eerie orange glow. Above him, bombs burst like fireworks at an all-American Independence Day celebration. Sergeant Fernandez was desperate, agonizing to find a way that the 28 men under his command could escape the approaching Japanese army. Suddenly, a young private ran up to him, breathless. Sir! Sir! There's, there's a barge leaving for Corregidor Island. It, it's got an anti-aircraft gun on board, but I swear there's enough room for us. Sergeant Fernandez sighed with relief. His prayers had been answered. Gather the men, he ordered the private. We're boarding that barge, at gunpoint if we have to. We're going to Corregidor. His men quickly gathered, and they hurried down the dock, heading away from the approaching Japanese army and toward the barge and the relative safety of Corregidor Island. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by the Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Alma Sam, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell stories of his fellow captives. This is the second of two episodes about the last-minute escapes from Bataan, mere hours before it fell to the Japanese. Today we'll focus on two servicemen involved in those escapes. Filipino cavalryman Felipe Fernandez, and American sailor Lynn Weeman. So far, the Left Behind episodes that feature both an American and a Filipino have much more information about the American servicemen than about the Filipino servicemen. And this is because it's difficult for me to find details about Filipino servicemen's lives and service. But this episode reverses that. Thanks to Victor Verano, a friend of Felipe Fernandez, I have access to Felipe's memoirs, which are invaluable. In fact, those memoirs offer so much information that it's been tough to pick out what to include and what to, sadly, leave out. On the flip side, finding information about American Lynn Weeman has been difficult. Thankfully, though, my great-grandfather's memoir includes details of Weeman's story. In fact, without either of these memoirs, I wouldn't be able to tell these men's stories at all because historical records and newspaper articles are sparse for both men. And with that, let's jump in. Maravellas Harbor on the southern tip of Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines is a world away from the western shores of Lake Erie, where Lynn Clayton Weeman grew up. 
He was born April 10, 1913, in Monroe, Michigan, which is about 40 miles south of Detroit. Lynn was the third of eight children born to Warner and Gertrude Weeman, who were themselves both born in Michigan, as were their parents. Lynn grew up on the family's farm and, in 1930, graduated from Ida High School in the town next to Monroe. But working the land wasn't Lynn's future. In September 1931, the 18-year-old enlisted in the U.S. Navy as a seaman. Interestingly, his naval training also took place in the Midwest, at the Great Lakes Naval Training Center near Chicago and on Lake Michigan. The young sailor joined the crew of the USS San Francisco on February 10, 1934, which was the day the San Francisco was commissioned or placed into active service. That makes women part of the Heavy Cruiser's original crew. Heavy Cruisers were designed and built for ship-to-ship -ship surface warfare, but women didn't see much, if any, battle during his six or so years on the San Francisco. Instead, women sailed the Caribbean and the western U.S. coast participating in training assignments and other operations. In 1939, he and the San Francisco crew sailed entirely around South America on a goodwill tour. The farmer's son brought his hard work ethic to the Navy, and Weeman worked his way through the naval ranks. By the late 1930s, he was a water tender first class, responsible for tending the fires and boilers in the steam engine room. Sometime in 1940, he became chief machinist's mate in this role, he maintained and repaired heavy equipment on board the ship. The former Midwest recruit was no longer an enlisted sailor. He was a senior non-commissioned officer who had progressed quite far in his career. His new rank came with a new ship assignment to the submarine tender USS Canopus. The Canopus sailed the Eastern Pacific, especially between the Philippines and China carrying food, fuel, torpedoes, supplies, maintenance equipment, and even relief crews for various U.S. submarines. Felipe A. Fernandez was born August 13, 1916, in San Nicolas, a city on the main Philippine island of Luzon, about 125 miles or 200 kilometers north of Manila. He was the fourth of six children born to Isidoro and Marina Fernandez. Felipe was raised in San Nicolas and in 1935 graduated from high school. About a year later, he joined the Philippine Scouts 26th Cavalry. The Scouts were highly trained units that were part of the U.S. Army, and they were made up mainly of Filipino servicemen. As a brand new recruit in a cavalry regiment during those pre-war years, Private Fernandez was free to go horse riding during weekends, so I spent most of my weekends riding through the cavalry ranges, showing up my horse to the girls in the barrios, and just plain riding and improving my horsemanship. Among the girls he met was the daughter of a fellow soldier. Her name was Amelia, and she was 10 years younger than Felipe. Felipe wrote that by late 1941, We were very well in love and planned to get married. By the way, these quotes are from Felipe Fernandez's memoir. Felipe was a non-native English speaker, and English was one of four languages he spoke. So, there are some non-standard English phrasing and word usage. However, I'm using his words, read as he wrote them, because I believe it's important to keep his words and writing voice intact. Felipe spent the last years of the 1930s advancing his soldiering skills and studying various military topics including military law. 
He advanced in rank, becoming a troop leader and then the assistant troop clerk. Some of the other older scouts had issues with his fairly quick rise in rank, but those advancements were due to Felipe's hard work and determination. And when he was 23, so around 1939 or 1940, he became a corporal. When Japanese forces attacked the Philippines on December 8, 1941, Corporal Felipe Fernandez oversaw a machine gun platoon in the 26th Cavalry's Troop E, which was led by Captain Johnny Wheeler, who I highlighted in episode 11. Felipe was stationed at Fort Stotzenberg, which was right next to Clark Field, where the Japanese first attacked. Felipe and his fiancée, Amelia, spent Sunday, December 7, 1942, together. Amelia and I had a nice time. Talked about a lot of things, such as when we were married and no longer under the scrutiny of many prying eyes, where we're going to do our housekeeping, how many children we were going to have, and all sorts of things related to our future family life. Amelia's mother cooked a delicious meal for us that I was so full, so I stayed till the wee hours. Thus, their long day together and late night meant that Corporal Fernandez did not hear Fort Stotzenberg's early morning cannon sounding the alarm about the Pearl Harbor bombings. Later that morning, when I arrived in barracks for Reveille, I found that the troop was gone. In a few minutes, the rest of the troop who were left behind assembled in the day room for further instructions. The supply sergeant issued weapons and ammunitions and ordered them to join the troop in Peng Peng, a nearby barrio where Troop E, 26th Cavalry, was camped to minimize the casualties in case the Japanese will bomb the post. And, as we know, the Japanese did bomb that day, all but destroying the U.S. Air Corps at Clark Field. Felipe recalled, We fired at the planes with our rifles, pistols, and even pointing at the planes with our bayonets, as if challenging the pilots to come down and fight us like men. Seems funny. But such was the feeling of men who were desperately angry, so with blind courage fought with anything to defend themselves. On that day, seven planes were shot down by the caliber 50 machine guns mounted on scout cars. In the afternoon, I mounted my horse and rode to Wardville to see if Amelia was still at home. Upon arriving, I found that they were gone. I searched the vicinity of the barrio, but I could not find them. Felipe assumed Amelia and her family had evacuated the area with other civilians fleeing the attacks on Clark Field and Fort Stotzenberg. A few days after that first attack, the 26th Cavalry abandoned Fort Stotzenberg. A week later, they camped near the barrio where Amelia's grandmother lived. I checked the house of Amelia's grandmother if she is there, and sure enough, she with her mother and the other children were already there. I told Amelia that conditions are bad and that we might be fighting a shooting war in a few days. I told her that I will always be thinking of her and that I will always pay her a visit whenever I can. But visiting was not to be. Just a week after seeing Amelia, Corporal Fernandez was part of the 26th Cavalry's stand against the first Japanese ground invasion of the Philippines on December 21st. I covered details of the 26th actions that day in episode 6, which is about Felipe's fellow cavalryman Dan Figuracion. Four days later, so on Christmas Day 1941, Corporal Fernandez's machine gun platoon was ordered to create a defense line on the east bank of a nearby river. The main Allied army was attempting to stop the Japanese southward advance along the main road. 
Fernandez's platoon's job was to hold a defensive line at the river so that Japanese forces couldn't outflank the Allied army. In other words, Fernandez's machine gun platoon needed to make certain the Japanese didn't just go around the defensive line on the main road. Felipe recalled, Just as the sun began to set, sending its rays like the rafters of a huge lean-to coming from the western sky, the Japanese advanced snipers began firing their rifles towards our direction. At first, there were a few scattered shots. Then there were many more. Then a lot more. They sounded very far from where we were at. Since the rays of the setting sun were impending our view, and since the firing sounded very far, I told my men to hold their fire. The sky was unusually clear, and the light of the moon was mellow, reminding me of those nights during my younger days when my loving father and I sat on rice paddies, and my father related to me local folklores, such as the dancing of the nymphs and fairies that peopled our valleys and woodlands. I was absorbed in my deep thought of my loving parents who were just four kilometers to the east, but too far for me to embrace them goodbye. Suddenly, a mortar shell fell about three yards in front of me, which luckily landed in the depths below. This woke me up from my daydreaming, and as I looked to the front, I saw numerous Japanese crawling like giant hermit crabs on the riverbed below. I alerted my men and gave them orders to fire at will. The gunners fanned their guns from side to side, mowing down the Japanese like cutting a field of kogan grass with a huge scythe. After the first sweep by my gunners, many Japanese stopped crawling, but many more kept on coming. I urged my men to keep firing, but some guns went quiet. I went to check what was happening and found that some guns had stopped firing due to overheating of the barrels causing ruptured cartridges. I tried to help keep their guns going. While going from position to position, giving my men some encouragement, Lieutenant Lysenring kept shouting at me to be careful, but there was no time to seek for cover. My men, who had just gotten familiar with the machine gun in our last two actions, became expert with the weapon. I said to myself that I will gladly go with these men in any battle at any time. After a while, some of the Japanese got through with carabaos, water buffalo, protecting their advance. Some attempted to scale the 20-foot bank in front of us, but my gunners tilted their guns and killed most of them. Others, who were about to get over the bank, were butted down by the riflemen who were interspersed with the gun emplacements. The Japanese fought with everything they had, but my men did the same, and I think they are braver and better than their enemies. They even rolled boulders and threw rocks to thwart the Japanese' attempt to scale the embankment. At about two o'clock past midnight, everything was suddenly quiet. I gathered four men and told them to find out what was happening below. They came back and reported that there were many dead Japanese in Carabaos on the riverbed. Thus, under Fernandez's direction, Troop E's machine gun platoon was able to stop the Japanese flank attempt. After the war, Fernandez received the Silver Star, the U.S. military's third highest decoration for valor in combat, for his actions that Christmas night. But despite Troop E's success, the overall Allied attempt to stop the invading Japanese from continuing south towards Manila were not successful. Even as Troop E was holding that defensive line along the river, U.S. General Douglas MacArthur had already begun ordering all U.S. forces to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula. It was a fighting withdrawal, and Troop E suffered many casualties. While the 26 was fighting their way to Bataan, Sailor Lynn Weeman and the USS Canopus sailed quietly to the peninsula's southern tip. 
The 1920s-era ship had been in Manila Bay when the Japanese attacked. Needing to remain at Manila to tend the submarines patrolling the island's waters, the USS Canopus was docked at Manila Harbor until late December when ordered to sail to Bataan. The crew did so, anchoring at the small Maravellas Bay on Bataan's southernmost point. The ship remained there for the next three months, at first tending to the submarines. When the submarines were ordered to leave Philippine waters, Canopus couldn't follow, due to the huge Japanese naval blockade that was surrounding the Philippine islands. So, the old ship, which was sometimes referred to by Bataan servicemen as the Can-Opis, remained in Maravellas Bay. That unfortunate nickname was especially unfair because despite being bombed and incapacitated, the old ship acted as a vital machine shop, repairing and creating weapons and equipment for the Allied armies. It also had the only ice cream maker on all of Bataan. Episode 14 describes the bombing and subsequent way Canopus hid, in plain sight, as an abandoned hull, while inside the machine shops buzzed with activity. As a machinist, Weeman would have participated in that hoax and worked to repair and create equipment for the fighting men on Bataan, which included Corporal Fernandez and the 26th Cavalry. The Philippine Scouts' 26th Cavalry played a vital role in the defense of Bataan, and Fernandez was involved in many battles and maneuvers. However, as you know, things did not go well for Allied forces on Bataan and conditions became dire in early April when the Japanese, newly invigorated with additional weapons, equipment, and soldiers, launched an overwhelming offensive on Filipino and American troops. The Allied armies quickly crumbled, and within days the enemy was overrunning Bataan. On the evening of April 8, 1942, General Edward King, who was over all Allied forces on Bataan, prepared to surrender Bataan. By the way, I covered General King's surrender in episode 24, if you're interested in those details. At 10.30 that evening, the USS Canopus, Captain Earl Sackett, received a message from military leaders on Corregidor. He wrote, Early in the day, the commandant had told us that no Navy or Army forces would be evacuated to Corregidor. However, at 10.30 at night, he telephoned that General Wainwright had decided to accept on the island, one scout regiment and the naval forces at Marivelles. These favored units were to augment the beach defenses of Corregidor, thus continuing their fight from a new set of foxholes. Corregidor, which the servicemen affectionately referred to as the Rock, was an island fortress about two miles offshore of the southern Bataan Peninsula. The Rock was already overcrowded with American and Filipino defenders but Wainwright determined that they could allow around 2,000 more men onto the island. That's 2,000 of the nearly 80,000 men on Bataan, so it was barely a drop in the bucket. But escaping to Corregidor meant everything to those who, like machinist Lynn Weeman, would escape the fate of the Bataan forces. But before they could escape to Corregidor, the Canopus crew had work to do. Captain Sackett continued, each man was to be limited almost to the clothes on his back while on the rock. But we took large supplies of equipment which would be useful in defense. Machine guns, rifles, ammunition, food, and fuel were all on the urgent list. 
All through the night, long lines of men scurried from storage tunnels to the docks, carrying the precious supplies to evacuation boats, heedless of exploding dynamite all around them, and paying no attention to frequent reports that Jap troops were rapidly approaching. My great-grandfather, Alma Salm, who was also a Canopus crew member, wrote, We worked furiously most of the night to load the lighter boats with miscellaneous stores and small equipment to take with us. After learning that the fall of Bataan was imminent and our forces, perhaps, would not be able to hold out till morning. Captain Sackett added, Evacuation of Navy forces had to be completed before dawn brought over more swarms of bombers or an advance guard of Jap tanks. Without defense shelters, which were being destroyed, the sailors would be helpless. All across Bataan, the Army and Navy began destroying everything they didn't want to fall into enemy hands. Equipment, artillery guns, the naval base at Maravellis, docks, ammunition dumps, fuel stores, TNT warehouses, and even ships. For hours, explosions rumbled southern Bataan and flames shot high above the town, lighting the sky for miles. An observer on Bataan described, quote, bursting shells, colored lights, and sprays of rainbow colors. Never did a 4th of July display equal it in noise, lights, colors, or cost, close quote. Captain Sackett recalled, That wild and horrible yet weirdly beautiful night must be imprinted forever in the memories of all those who lived through its spectacular fury. For miles back on slopes of the mountain, burning army ammunition's dumps lighted the sky with showers of rocket-like streamers, while the ground shook with heavy detonations of exploding ammunition. And, my great-grandfather Al-Masam described, Our troops beyond the ridges were destroying all ammunition and supplies in the wake of the fast-moving Jap advance. The result was not only the almost continuous thunderous detonations, but a huge conflagration which illuminated the surrounding country. This, together with the gigantic explosions from the heavy dynamite charges in the string of tunnels, filled the air with heavy acrid fumes and smoke which lay like a pall over the placid waters of the bay. The little light from a waning moon gave it all a very eerie appearance. The bombs bursting in air that night gave proof that the U.S. flag would not be there come morning. Around 9.30 p.m., as if nature herself had a stake in the battle, a 7.6 earthquake shook Bataan, adding to the chaos and confusion. Well, for those who noticed the earthquake over the detonations that were continually rattling southern Bataan that night, many men didn't feel it. And as someone who experienced the San Francisco earthquake of 1989, I can tell you that a 7-point-something earthquake is very noticeable. So that gives us some idea of how much Bataan Peninsula was shaking from the detonations and explosions. Among the things destroyed that night was the USS Canopus herself. After evacuating the crew and unloading as many supplies as possible, crew members backed the old ship, a fond mother of sorts to her 500-man crew, into the deep waters off of Maravellis Bay. Captain Sackett wrote, The canopus seemed reluctant to go, but her crew could still take pride in the fact that the Japs had been unable to knock her out. She was still able to back out under her own power to deep water, 
There she was laid to her final rest by the hands of the sailors she had served so faithfully. An observer described the ship's last moment with more graphic detail. Quote, She seemed to leap out of the water in a sheet of flames and then drop back down heavily like something with all the life gone out of it. Close quote. It was a sad moment, but the crew rested easier knowing she couldn't be salvaged and used by Japanese forces. The 26th Cavalry was not one of the units designated by Wainwright for Corregidor. The cavalry leader, knowing that Baton's surrender was imminent, gave his men a choice. They could surrender as a unit or make for the jungle and the hills. By this time, only 250 of the original 800 men remained. Most of the cavalry men chose to head into the jungle rather than become POWs. However, 25-year-old Felipe Fernandez, who was by this time a sergeant and in command of the Troop B machine gun platoon, doesn't seem to have been with the main body of the 26th Cavalry. He had 28 men under his command and, on the night of April 8, led them south toward Maravellas, by foot or whatever mode of transportation they could find. The cavalry had given up their horse mounts three months earlier. Fernandez recalled, I asked myself, what was next? Rumors were flying around that surrender was imminent. I then assembled my soldiers and asked them what they preferred to do. Tech Sergeant Varese said that if we could commandeer a banca, a dugout boat, and paddle eastward, he could find the mouth of a river leading us to where he was born. There, we could lay quiet until we would be able to fight again. The younger ones would like to go north through the Zambales Mountains and try to locate the camp of Colonel Thorpe and join him as guerrillas. Both were sound, but we don't have food and low on ammunitions, and if we get into a firefight, we will all get killed or captured. It was a decision that had to be made, and I didn't have a ready answer. I was never in this position where the lives of my men would depend upon the decision that I make. I prayed and cried silently, asking for someone who could give me the orders to obey, but there was nobody. It was up to me. Finally, while I was agonizing with what I was to tell my men, Private Manklicek came running breathlessly and telling me that there were two barges where soldiers were loading anti-aircraft guns to go to Corregidor. My problem was solved. I assembled my men and told them that we were not going to surrender, but all of us were going to jump onto that barge at gunpoint if necessary. It was almost midnight that evening when I led my platoon to the barge, dejected, tired, and hungry. My men meekly followed me like a bunch of sheep marching to the slaughterhouse. There was enough room, so we gathered together on the left rear corner of the barge. As soon as the barge took off, the soldiers of the anti-aircraft battery opened some of their emergency rations and began to eat. Seeing that we had no food and were just watching them, some came over and shared their food with us. My emotions took the better of me, which made me cry. I was so happy to see that people are willing to share what little they have with those who have not. When we were nearing the Corregidor dock, Japanese planes were up in the air, and as soon as they spotted us, they started bombing and strafing. Some soldiers jumped into the water and swam to the dock. Those of us who had a heavier load just curled to the side of the barge, hoping that we wouldn't get hit. A few of the soldiers were hit, some seriously, and some suffered superficial wounds. The anti-aircraft guns in Corregidor came to our rescue by firing at the planes. One of them was shot down, and they left. As soon as we debarked from the barge, another group of planes came flying over, trying to inflict more damage, but we were already on land and there were ditches and foxholes there to hide. 
Finally, the siren sounded all clear, so we got out of our hiding places. We were told to go to Malinta Tunnel and report to the Provost Marshal. Fernandez and his men were assigned to a platoon of the 4th Marines defending the Corregidor beaches. When they arrived at their post, their new sergeant asked Fernandez, What unit y'all from? The 26th Cavalry, sir, Fernandez responded. Well, by God, you're in the Marine Corps now, and we sure can use you guys. While Fernandez was leading his men to safety on Corregidor, Sailors Lynn Weeman and Alma Sam were aboard the last motor launch to leave the Canopus before she was scuttled. Instead of heading straight for Corregidor, they first went to the Maravellas docks to pick up the last men of the Navy demolition squads that had been blowing up Navy stores around Maravellas earlier that night. Captain Sackett explained that, As soon as the tunnels were cleared of useful supplies, their entrances were blown in by dynamite charges to prevent the Japs from using them or equipment left behind. Just before dawn, all boats had finally been loaded and the little fleet started off for Corregidor. Weeman and Salm sat near each other under the canopy of their motor launch, watching the explosions and talking above the deafening noise. Suddenly, the whole hillside in front of us erupted in a tremendous explosion that was so great, it almost tore us loose from the boats, Salm described. Their launch was one of the last remaining in Maravellas Bay. Sackett wrote, Evidently, gasoline drums stored in one of the tunnels had been broken open when the entrance was dynamited, and fumes in the corked-up passages had built up a gigantic, explosive charge. The eruption hurled boulders half a mile into the bay, but three Canopus launches, including the one Salm and Weeman were on, were much closer than that. Here's Salm again. The upheaval took place directly in front of us, about 200 yards away. In addition to the mighty concussion, it hurled huge boulders directly into the harbor. The calm waters in the immediate vicinity were whipped into turbulence from the fury of it all. One of the boats was hit by a massive boulder that sheared off the stern, sinking the launch instantly. Its three occupants struggled in the tumultuous water until the third launch could pick them up. Salman Weeman's launch wasn't as lucky. Salm remembered, I had been in brief conversation with warrant machinist Lynn C. Weeman when the fireworks from the hillside broke loose. This unexpected detonation hurtled massive chunks of rock down through the canopy of the little launch. I was sitting only three feet from Weeman, but he never spoke again. His head had been practically severed by the falling stone missiles, while I... Lee felt a few small pebbles, no larger than peas, rain gently on me. Warrant machinist Lynn C. Weeman would have turned 29 the very next day. The young sailor was one of four men killed on that launch. Nine others were wounded. Salm and the other non-wounded sailors offered what first aid they could. But the injured men had to wait for more than an hour until reaching the relative safety of Corregidor for medical attention. Warrant Officer Lynn Weeman's body was laid to rest in one of the island's battlefield cemeteries. Sergeant Felipe Fernandez's platoon and the Canopus crew were assigned to the Corregidor beach defenses. I'll go into details about the defense of Corregidor in future episodes, but in general, Corregidor was a repeat of Bataan. The island was under siege for the next month, 
enduring constant attack by enemy aircraft and artillery. Food, supplies, weapons, and ammunition dwindled. On May 6, 1942, Japanese forces landed on Corregidor, and by the early afternoon, the island had surrendered. Felipe Fernandez was now a prisoner of war. After a short time on Corregidor, the Filipino POWs were sent to Camp O'Donnell to join their fellow Filipino servicemen who were captured on Bataan. American POWs from Bataan were also housed at O'Donnell, but they were transferred to another camp around the time that Fernandez arrived there. Camp O'Donnell was an awful place where disease ran rampant and Filipino servicemen died at a rate of 400 per day during the camp's earliest days. Among these men was the father of Fernandez's fiancée, Amelia. During the last week of August 1942, the Japanese mass-released Filipino prisoners from O'Donnell. The Japanese forces in the Philippines needed their soldiers and resources, especially food, for other duties than guarding thousands of Filipino POWs. Felipe Fernandez was among the released men. He explained, My first order of business was to look for Amelia. When I left Amelia in December 1941 at her grandmother's house, I told her that we will meet in that house when I have a chance to come back. I did not expect Amelia to be able to wait for me where we agreed to meet, but I know, Amelia, that she is going to fulfill her promise even if she is going to get killed in her attempt to fulfill a promise. As I knocked at her grandmother's door, I was surprised to see Amelia just the way she was when I left her, slim, young, and beautiful. She let me in, and we hugged each other and started to cry with tears of happiness. By this time, Felipe was 26 and Amelia 16. They had not seen each other for eight months, and they hadn't had any contact. They got married the very next day in a small ceremony by the town's acting mayor. Our reason for settling for this kind of marriage was to be absolved from the prying eyes of neighbors and to have a piece of paper to prove that I did not kidnap her in case we go out of town since she was very young. Well, that paper was perhaps needed because within months, Felipe and Amelia moved to live with his parents in San Nicolas. Trains and vehicles got them within 20 miles of his home, but then they had to walk the remainder. The distance was nothing to me, but for my wife who had been pampered in her youthful age, 20 miles was a lifetime journey. Fearing that Amelia might get sick, I carried across all the rivers, not letting her touch the water. We arrived at my parents' house at almost midnight. I woke my parents up, and when they saw their only daughter-in-law, my mother and sisters hugged her and held her like she was the most precious thing they owned. My sisters hurriedly prepared food for us, and while we were eating, my mother was still hugging my wife. Oh, everyone loved her, this little fragile thing in their midst. Felipe's father gave the young couple a house and a piece of land as a wedding gift. From what I understand, the house was in town, and the piece of land was at least a short distance away. One day, a group of Filipino constabulary, who were working for the Japanese, asked me if I knew of any guerrilla group hiding around my place. I told him that I was just released from the prisoner of war camp, and I don't know of any guerrilla. This made him sadistically mean and ordered his men to seize me and bound my hands behind my back. We arrived in an abandoned house where other prisoners were held by the Japanese. They made us stand, mostly submerged, in the river until about 10 o'clock at night. Then they brought us in for interrogation about the gorillas. If you don't know anything, there's nothing to tell. 
The more you deny knowing anything, the more they torture you. In the morning, they moved us to their temporary headquarters. To go there, we had to cross the river where they soaked us the night before. On the other side of the river were civilians, mostly women, looking for their menfolks who had been missing. One of them was Amelia, my loving wife. As soon as I crossed, Amelia asked me if I saw her husband. My face must have been badly altered from beating if my new bride could not recognize me. I told her to go home, and as soon as she heard my voice, she went berserk and started crying. She recognized my voice, but not my face. She hugged me so tightly that it took a tall sergeant to get us separated. As soon as we parted, Amelia looked up to the sergeant and recognized him. Amelia told him that she is the daughter of a soldier he knew, and that I am her husband and that she is alone with me in this part of the country. Sergeant Kakayan remembered Amelia's father, so he told her that she better go home and that he will see to it that I'll be released very soon. The following day, we were moved to the schoolhouse in town. We were seated on the bottom floor of the building, and one by one, they brought us upstairs. They beat you up, and when they were tired of beating, they submerged your head, face down, in a basin of water, long enough to make you gasp for air. I said to myself that when my turn came, I will fight back, and one of us will get killed, and I will try to be sure that it will not be me. The two prisoners before me were brought upstairs, then I began preparing myself for the ordeal. I prayed to God to look over my wife with favor. I cried for help, hoping that some miracle would happen to save me since I have not done anything wrong. All of a sudden, Sergeant Kakayan appeared at the doorway. He told the Japanese sergeant that he would vouch for me as a good person and asked that I be released. He said that he would be responsible for my good behavior. The Japanese sergeant summoned me and had me released. From that time on, I promised to myself that the only good Japanese or collaborator is one who is dead. It was unchristian, but we're humans and not saints. Instead of being a peaceful ex-prisoner, I made myself elusive to avoid getting recaptured. Felipe attempted to find and join a guerrilla group, but when that didn't work out, I quietly stayed in town, doing and observing anything that might help the cause. I even went to a Japanese school to learn their language and how to read their writing, so that I might be able to understand what the Japanese were up to. At these classes, he met a man who was working with the Filipino underground. It was a network of civilians attempting to bring food and other supplies to guerrillas and POWs. Felipe joined this man on several underground operations. It was a happy adventure, but dangerous. So when Amelia found out how dangerous it was, she begged me to stop. I reverted to my quiet living, working the land, and being with my wife. In late 1944, rumors began spreading that U.S. forces were returning to liberate the Philippines. Felipe suspected his family's homes were in the direct path of the probable Japanese route of withdrawal, and he prepared the barn on his land to house his family in case they had to evacuate. The night after he finished those preparations, Felipe peeped out of the window, and I saw many Japanese soldiers marching towards the east. I knew that they were withdrawing through the route that I predicted. I bundled Amelia, dropped by the house of my parents and sisters, and told them that it was time to leave. They too were ready, so we did not lose any time. As soon as I reached the farm, the town behind me looked like a huge bonfire. The Japanese did not want to leave anything worth salvaging, so they burned everything. From his position, Felipe could see U.S. planes bombing and strafing the Japanese location, 
as well as the U.S. Army tanks and soldiers coming into San Nicolas. A couple days later, he went back to town. As we approached the area, somebody perfectly concealed behind a rice paddy about 10 yards to our front challenged us. He cautiously told us to put our hands up and ordered us to advance carefully towards him. When we were close enough to make conversation, I told him that I was with the 26th Horse Cavalry and that I am a paroled prisoner of war. He took us to his corporal, who was sitting with his machine gun crew under the Lomboy tree. After telling the corporal that I was a platoon sergeant of a machine gun platoon during the war, he showed me his machine gun and asked me to identify it. I told him that his was similar to the machine gun that we used while fighting the Japanese, which is a Browning air-cooled caliber 30 machine gun mounted on a tripod. It is bolt-operated and fired automatically by holding back the trigger. In combat, we normally fire by bursts of three or a single shot to preclude the enemy from spotting its smoke. The gun is stripped by removing the back plate. The corporal stopped me and said he is convinced. The corporal then had Felipe report to military control, and soon Sergeant Fernandez was part of a military police unit stationed in Manila, where he served out the rest of the war. After World War II, Felipe remained in the U.S. Army and attended Officer Candidate School, where he became a second lieutenant. In 1949, he had to leave Amelia and their growing family for training in the United States, and afterward, he served in the Korean War. Next came a tour of duty in Okinawa, Japan, but this time his family, after three years apart, joined him. In the late 1950s or early 1960s, the Fernandez family relocated to California, where Felipe served at Fort Ord near Monterey. In 1964, he and his family were transferred to Fort Wainwright in Fairbanks, Alaska. The average December temperature in Manila is 86 degrees. In Fairbanks, it's 9 degrees. I have to imagine the climate was quite an adjustment for this native Philippine family. In 1967, 51-year-old Captain Felipe Fernandez retired from the U.S. Army after 30 years of service. Not ready for retirement life, Felipe went to work for the U.S. federal government and in 1978 graduated with a bachelor's in management from Golden State University. In the late 1980s, after 20 years with the federal government, Felipe retired for good. He became active in the Philippine Scouts Heritage Society an organization created by former Philippine scouts to keep alive the heroic legacy of the elite Filipino forces. He attended many scout reunions and reenactments, and I have pictures of those events on Facebook and Instagram. The links are in the show notes. Felipe also enjoyed traveling and was known for his sense of humor. He and his beloved wife, Amelia, often took long walks. A newspaper noted, quote, when they could no longer physically handle those long walks, Felipe would then drive the family car around town, often stopping at the working wharf in Monterey Bay for a stroll or simply to park in the best disabled person's spot, MySpace, he called it, and look out at the ocean for a good long time, close quote. In 2012, Felipe Fernandez was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away at age 96 on March 9, 2013, at his home in Seaside, California. Nearly five years later, his wife Amelia joined him. They rest together at the Mission Memorial Park in Seaside. Felipe and his wife were survived by their five children, many grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren, 
living on both sides of the Pacific, in both the United States and in the Philippines. After Felipe's death, his granddaughter, a reporter for the Manila Standard in the Philippines, shared some of her grandfather's words regarding his service in World War II. I lost many friends in that horrible struggle. Are the sacrifices we gave worth it? Did we really change the lives of later generations for the better? It's up to you, for whom we fought, to show that our sacrifices were not in vain. Those are words we can all live by, and they poignantly remind me of the sailor we met earlier in this episode, machinist Lynn Weeman. After the war, his remains were exhumed and identified by his dog tag. It's a good thing his dog tag was with the remains, otherwise he likely wouldn't have been identified because his skull was missing. Thus, dental records, the standard post-war identification method for those remains without dog tags, could not be used. Today, Lynn C. Weeman is buried at the Manila American Cemetery, Plot A, Row 1, Grave 188. He is reportedly the second person from his hometown of Monroe, Michigan, killed in action during World War II. And he is the namesake for the Lynn C. Weeman American Legion Post in Ida, Michigan. I usually find many newspaper articles about the American men and women I research. I found only one for Weeman, a two-line notification of his death among a long list of Michigan men killed during the war, which makes me even more grateful for my great-grandfather's memoir. Without it, I couldn't have told Weeman's story. And I wonder if it's the only existing document that tells the details of Weeman's death. Today's stories show us two heroic men who sacrificed many things in the fight for freedom. They were two of many such men, including the some 75,000 soldiers remaining on Bataan that evening of April 8th to 9th, 1942. The next day, they would all become prisoners of the Japanese, who would force them onto the atrocious Bataan death march. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Weeman's and Fernandez's stories on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the 26 Cavalry's experiences on Bataan, I suggest the book The Doomed Horse Soldiers of Bataan by Raymond G. Wolfe Jr. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. And consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is research written and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Jake Herrenberg and Tyler Harmon. Special thanks to Victor Verano for sharing Felipe Fernandez's story and memoir, without which I could not have told Felipe's story. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with the story behind one of Bataan's most iconic photographs. Music